Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Jennifer Altahanger, a senior lecturer in contemporary Chinese history at King's College London, about her new book, Legal Lessons Popularizing Laws in the People's Republic of China, 1949 to 1989. This book was published uh, this year with Harvard University Asia Center and distributed by Harvard University Press. And in it, she examines the challenges that the Chinese Communist Party faced in the dissemination of uh, legal knowledge um, from producing educational materials in a timely manner to monitoring non-state content and interpretations of laws. And finally, uh, by attempting new techniques of law dissemination, Uh, meaning mass campaigns, national discussions, and uh, more recently, five-year plans. It was a pleasure to read this book and to speak with Jen about it. Please enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Altahanger about her book, Legal Lessons, Popularizing Laws in the People's Republic of China, 1949 to 1989. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Could you start us off by telling us a little bit about your background? So... I did my. Um, I came to Chinese studies and Chinese history really out of an interest of studying something I'd never done before. I'd never studied before. I did my. Um, I guess it's high school degree, a German Abitur in uh, Germany, and you study an enormous amount of subjects. Um, I think we did exams in about ten different subjects at the time. Um, and I just wanted to do something that I hadn't been writing an enormous amount of exams on in the past two years. And so I uh, ended up choosing Chinese studies because it seemed a fascinating country. Um, I thought it was such a big country, it would probably turn out to you know, have something that I could then take forward um, after a BA, uh, obviously, as parents are, they were particularly worried that I was going to be able to do some sort of job afterwards. And so China seemed a fairly uh, good choice, um, both from my and their part sides. Well, and then um, as I did my Chinese studies degree, I got really fascinated by uh, the People's Republic of China. They eventually, then also, as I went into a PhD at the University of Heidelberg, um, I started focusing on the cultural history of communist China. Um, I was in a research group then called the Popular His- uh, the Popular Culture Research Group, led by uh, Professor Barbara Mittler at Heidelberg. And she brought together you know, a really diverse group of uh, fun people who are working on totally different aspects of China, but somehow we all had popular culture in common. Um, and that, was, that ended up being... Uh, sort of the, the context in which I did my PhD. And um, 
I ended up then going into an area of propaganda studies, which was something a lot of people did in Heidelberg, but with law. And that was something not many people did. And that was quite fascinating and fun. Um, and so I stayed with Chinese studies, not something I had necessarily planned to do when I first began, but something I really enjoyed along the line, um, grew to enjoy more and more with each year, and then was very grateful that I found you know, that's the elusive thing that's getting all the harder every year now, um, funding and then jobs. And how specifically did you come to write this book and uh, write about law dissemination in the PRC? So I'm not entirely sure I have an origin story really for this particular book. Um, I'm quite surprised by what it turned out to be in the end as well. Um, I am not a lawyer. I never start, uh, studied law properly, so in a way I am not at all equipped uh, to write about laws, but that can be a, a fascinating vantage point from which to set out to do this. Um, actually, it was on, uh, on a trip I took to China at the beginning of my PhD while I was still trying to find my feet, uh, thematically speaking, also in many other ways, but definitely thematically speaking. Um, and I was... I visited several bookstores along the line, as we all do. I was just walking through uh, the different sections, and I came, I must have somehow come into the law section. It wasn't on purpose, really, um, at that point. And I saw all these comic books and uh, sort of small self-help books and how-to guides uh, for dealing with law. It's that fascinated me because, well, I'm sure that exists in Europe as well and in other countries. I had never really consciously um, become aware, I've never really become aware of this kind of material. Um, and I saw, I then saw that many of these materials had actually been read in the bookstore already. They showed clear signs of usage. And so this wasn't just stuff lying around waiting, uh, collecting dust and waiting to be bought, if ever, uh, but rather this was material that people had actually used perhaps not purchased, some had been purchased. Um, and that was then, that was sort of the context in which I decided to turn what was a, uh, what was going to be a PhD about uh, marriage and gender in the in Mao era China into a PhD about uh, the implementation of the marriage law of 1950 and the 1953 uh, month-long mass campaign about which a lot had already been written um, but this particular angle this idea of writing all these how-to guides and then I found lots of human interest stories and an enormous amount of uh, different kinds of uh, popular culture material almost you could call them although of course that's a complicated term in the context of uh, um, a state socialist regime. Um, and I wanted to somehow make sense of what that material meant and who had been not merely reading this material or had been made to read this material and what the consequences of that had been, but also who had actually produced this sort of material, who had wrote, written it, drawn cartoons, drawn stories, um, who had edited, and then in turn uh, how the... Uh, well, we, I think we all have them um, on our minds when we think about uh, PRC history, the famous uh, propaganda authority census, how they had actually dealt with that sort of material, how they had known what good propaganda and what not good, but poor, wrong propaganda was. Um, and so I finished my PhD, which was then completely about uh, the marriage law. And by, I think, the time I was writing this up, and I had to finish it, it had to get done, I realized that this should 
be a much larger study that didn't just look at the early 1950s and the marriage law, but actually um, looked at this concept of disseminating laws um, on the CCP rule from the 1950s all the way to the 1980s. And partly that was because, um, as I'd done much, much more research since you know those early days in the bookstore, um, I had discovered that these, this 1950s moment of, uh, of the promulgation of very few laws in uh, the Young People's Republic of China that was accompanied, however, by mass mobilization campaigns to implement many of these laws, to get people to, ex- to understand laws, to interpret them correctly, that this 1950s moment connected in important ways with what had, become, what had come before 1949, but also with what came after 1978, um, after reform and opening began and after the death of Mao, when we get to this 1980s moment, my 1985-86 in particular, of five-year plans for the popularization of law. And really the idea then, and it took me a while to figure out how to go about this, was to really take uh, the book, that the book would be moving from the 1950s all the way into the 1980s. And ultimately that. Uh, with a lot more research, um, and uh, lucky for me, uh, the discovery of more really, really interesting materials that allowed me to look at both how people responded, but also how um, these kinds of propaganda works were created, and how they were policed, and what they were meant to actually do, and how that was in turn received, um, that ultimately ended up becoming uh, the book that is now Legal Lessons. Mm, nice. Uh, so a question I had uh, about the introduction is that you say you're, you're going to focus on Beijing and Shanghai. I was wondering if you could explain your choice of those two cities in particular. So in choosing Beijing and Shanghai, uh, that was a decision I really... I, I I sat uneasy with to a certain extent. I still am... Not 100% convinced I shouldn't have taken in another city, but there you go. A book turns out to be the book you write um, and the material you have. And I do try to include uh, where I have it materials from other places. But at first, the logic for Beijing and Shanghai really was that both of these, that I could presume that both people in both of these cities, many people, certainly not all and certainly not the majority, but many people in both of these cities had been part of urban legal cultures from pre-1949, which meant that they had a certain basic understanding about law, that certain terms were not entirely lost on them. Um, That situation, as for instance, uh, scholars like Neil Diamond have shown, was quite different um, in other places, but even in places like Beijing and Shanghai. Um, But also at the same time, both Beijing and Shanghai pre-1949 had been, in their own ways, uh, centers of lawmaking, um, but particularly they had also been centers of cultural production pre-49. And so as I was looking um, at writing a book that really gave um, a voice, as far as it was possible, to the people who created law propaganda, who created materials to disseminate law, I found myself uh, focusing on Beijing and Shanghai because that was where the publishers uh, were who issued much of this material, where uh, propaganda authorities then in turn um, were very active on the ground, engaging with publishers and and, and, uh, uh, newspapers, 
and uh, magazines um, in in both trying to devise good law propaganda, but also in trying to uh, shape it to an extent, uh, guide it, and then also control it and at times curtail it. And uh, I think maybe we can turn to the first part of your book uh, about the earlier period, 1949 to 1954 now, um, that looks at some of the challenges that the early CCP regime faced when trying to lay down the foundations for how law propaganda would work at this national level now. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your findings from chapter one uh, and basically uh, tell us a little bit about why was law dissemination, uh, the dissemination of these new laws problematic in the early years of the PRC? What what was going on there? So in many ways, when I started really thinking about the book as a book beyond the thesis, um, I had to ask myself, well, was law propaganda just another form of propaganda? And that would seem a logical, not only logical question, but this would seem to be a logical answer. Yes, it was, you know, just another topic that a uh, that an existing, well, an existing propaganda apparatus that then would be as uh, scholars like Michael Schoenhaus and uh, Matthew Johnson have shown be built up in the process of the 1950s. And so law would just make use to, to disseminate law via propaganda was essentially just to, uh, you know, put, how's it called? New wine in old bottles. And as I then really started looking at different, uh, different kinds of materials from um, so-called naval uh, publications to archival materials to um, other national levels of directives, but then also uh, internal materials that gave a sense of how people actually responded to these directives and how they tried to arrive at the decision to disseminate laws via uh, the existing propaganda network, as it was called. Um, it became clear that law did not fit comfortably. Uh, either within uh, CCP rule in general, uh, nor indeed with uh, the propaganda apparatus. So it was not at all clear um, whether law was just another form of political education, of political propaganda, um, whether it was something much like science dissemination, which fit much more comfortably um, into existing structures, or if it was something altogether different. And so for me, the nineteen, the phase of nineteen fifty 1950 to nineteen fifty four was really all about um, a great variety of people within uh, what we so so commonly call the, for lack of a better term, the party state. We're really trying to figure out well, how do laws fit into political ideology? How do we explain laws? Are uh, laws with with this idea of lawful and unlawful, uh, right and wrong, how do they map on to uh, political categories of right and wrong, um, good and bad, and how do laws really fit in? And so for me, chapter one really became all about trying to trace, not so much in a in a clear chronology, but more from a variety of different uh, perspectives and moments, how we get from 1950, the promulgation uh, famously of the marriage law and then of the agrarian reform law, which forms the basis for land reform. Um, how we get from 1950, where these laws were publicized broadly, but not really in a mass campaign, to 1953, when 
in March 1953, there is a month-long mass mobilization campaign for the uh, propagation and then education in and study of the marriage law. Now, it's important to note here um, that mass mobilization campaigns, we, there were a lot of different campaigns, um, and there was a lot of mass mobilization in the course of uh, the Mao era, but not every campaign was also a mass campaign. There was a difference between a campaign and a mass campaign. And the marriage law mass campaign became one of uh, four major mass campaigns of the early 1950s. And that terminology, that that emphasis that this was not just a campaign, it was a mass campaign and it therefore meant more and people also read it accordingly, um, that really fascinated me because once I was looking at the internal documents, it became quite clear that this was having a mass campaign for laws was quite confusing for a number of people. What would that mean? How would laws be implemented? Did it mean that um, one would now have to state an enormous amount of uh, of of um, of trials, of show trials, of educational show trials that would explain laws to people? What would the, how would one re- explain the relation between law and politics, which was central to this whole affair? This was about um, clearly linking laws and politics. They weren't meant to be separate. Laws and politics were meant to be linked through these campaigns. Um, and so really chapter one then is about showing different approaches and different perspectives on this problem of what laws were, how they would fit into CCP rule, um, and how one would disseminate them um, as part of the mass line, um, which was, of course, very important because this idea of the mass line from the people to the people meant that laws were not just made by the party state, but they were, in in essence, they essentialized um, the needs of the people into the form of a law, and therefore the mass campaign would give this back, give this law that was of the people back to the people through education and through dissemination of this knowledge. And how to do that then became the big question and what the connection of laws would be to politics in this context of the last mass line became the question. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I wonder if you could also briefly discuss, you you had this um, discussion of CCP ideology of what these laws meant for the people and what they meant for the non-people. I thought that was a, an interesting distinction that was being made. Oh, that was, that was, that was a copy editing nightmare. Oh, really? um, trying, to ensure, <laughs> trying to ensure that uh, when you write about people and then you write about the people with a capital P to actually get this consistently right throughout the book. Mm. Um, because of course, when we talk, so, so there, one talks about people as generally being, you know, everyone. But in the context of CCP ideology, I've meant, as many before me have, of course, discussed, um, that is, the people with a capital P um, were to be separated from the non-people, those who did not classify as part of um, the people and part of um, those who belonged to the good classes. And this meant that laws within CCP ideology, laws would be an Today, we would say instrument at the time the common language was a weapon of the people with a capital P um, to liberate themselves, uh, to uh, to be used as um, a weapon of the ruling classes. So with the people with a capital P now being the ruling classes, laws would be their weapon. Um, 
And on the other hand, laws would be a weapon to educate, but then also control and when necessary, punish those who were not part of the people with a capital P. Now that was already on paper, a rather difficult distinction um, to make and to make consistently over different, um, over different, uh, over the course of different publications and different uh, directives, but it got far more difficult to apply in practice in the course of the 1950s and then early 1960s, which is partly uh, perhaps the reason why law propaganda and the dissemination of laws uh, gets practiced at some times, but then also as a technique abandoned at others because of its, and I'm sure we'll talk about those later on, its unintended consequences or unanticipated consequences. Um, and so as, um, as, as, the people with a capital P and the category of the non-people over time changed. And this happens in the course of the 50s and the 60s. Who needed to be educated in laws and how and to what extent became a far more murky question. Um, The other problem was that Although, sort of in theory, the idea would be that, well, if laws are a product of the mass line, that is, if they are the essence of what people want, put into legal form and return to them through education, well, then the people from whom, with a capital P, from whom these laws, these ideas for the law, the needs for the laws are taken, well, then they would intuitively embrace them with some education and with some with given access to this knowledge, but there would be sort of an intuitive knowledge of what these laws would be about. In practice, that did not work. Um, And so education became as much about the mass line of educating people in the laws because this was part of being being a citizen, part of the people in the the socialist society to come. But it also became... um, Mass, mass mobilization for laws and legal education of the general population then also became a technique by which to control how the people with a capital P understood laws and to try and ensure that they understood them consistent with how party authorities, party state authorities wanted them, wanted these laws to be interpreted and understood. Okay, uh, why don't we turn to your next chapter, which talks about the publishing field in, uh, around this time. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what did the publishing landscape for uh, materials related to laws look like in the early 1950s? And uh, what kind of relationship did these various um, publishing entities have with the government or the CCP? A complicated one, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so I, I, I got started when I, I, I keep on going back to when I got started with this book, but I think in many ways this book entailed an enormous amount of surprises for me. Um, so when I first looked at the people who were producing, we started to trace the people who were producing this kind of um, law propaganda for the marriage law, but then also for the discussion of the uh, first state constitution in 1954. Um, I also began tracing the publishing houses that issued these materials. And um, thankfully, there are some fantastic published compendia of uh, materials on the history of publishing under in, in the People's Republic of China. And these contained an enormous a wealth of documents about uh, the 
transformation of private publishers into joint state private and then state owned publishing houses. And as I discovered, as I started tracing the names of my different publishers, um, many of them were actually private publishers. And so um, in these documents, slowly but surely, the picture that emerged and that then ultimately became uh, the basis for chapter two, together with um, many archival materials that I later, uh, that I then found as well, um, the picture that emerged was one in which private publishers, many small to medium size, not the not merely the very big ones, um, had been very active in creating um, a diversity of propaganda materials between 1950 and 1952 uh, that then become the basis on which uh, laws are disseminated. Um, and I didn't want to automatically presume that, you know, you have a private publisher Hence, the content of that material is more problematic. That's an assumption that many CCP officials made by default. That's not what I was trying to do. Um, but what was clear is that these pu- private publishers worked in different ways. They were, at least between 50 and 53, under different um, supervision structures than uh, state-owned publishing houses. State-owned publishing houses, in turn, um, could not nearly issue the kind of propaganda variety um, that was often de- needed or desired for these kinds of campaigns. And so um, that meant that when looking at the early 1950s and this moment of trying to figure out, of, of many people trying to figure out how do we disseminate laws in the best form? How do we ensure consistency of message across different uh, different media and then across different, uh, you know, different, say, within print media, different publications within print media? Um, I was actually dealing, and people at the time were dealing, with a quite diverse publishing field. And that meant that one of the key forms of propaganda, namely print propaganda. Other forms of propaganda were equally important, but print propaganda really mattered quite um, quite a bit. That print propaganda, in turn, for one, was produced by a within the context of a diverse publishing field. It was uh, produced within the context in which publishers very often, particularly private publishers, very often were actually censored after publication, not before, so that things could be circulating that later on census decided were not actually ideal propaganda and they wanted it off the market, but it would already be in circulation. And that meant that this idea of a consistent message um, of what laws were actually about was that even the attempt to get that consistency of message was to a certain extent already if it wasn't broken, it at least was challenged in the course of even just producing these materials. And so that became chapter two, um, because then the marriage law, one of my big case studies for the 1950s, um, turned out also to be a major major moment for the publishing industry as uh, government um, publishing authorities tried to use this, the, the, case of marriage law implementation, which had seen so many private publishers involved as a case study for why more control of state of, uh, of publishing houses was necessary. And so the marriage law uh, gets turned into a case of showing how things go wrong if you have private publishers and how you get a diversity of messages that is a problem potentially for 
the government and for party. And so that's essentially what I try to trace in chapter two. It is, I think, uh, perhaps my most geeky chapter of all. Um, I also quite enjoyed it. Uh, it, it, it. It sort of takes a very narrow case approach, but it is quite fascinating in the sense that you then get state-owned publishing houses, and this is one of the big examples I use, trying to put out, if not the diversity of publications, because they weren't, they, they did not focus on diversity as much as on um, on having one model of propaganda that had been carefully vetted at all stages of uh, of. of party and government, and then to take this one model forward and just publish it in absolutely huge print runs of several million copies. And that happens in the course, for instance, of uh, the, uh, the the dissemination of the so-called regulations for the punishment of counter-revolutionaries, which is in the context of the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries, but then is also... Um, is also a booklet, a kind of booklet that's issued in the context of the marriage law campaign. And these booklets, in turn, um, have their own very interesting history. Um, these Both these booklets published in the millions um, that I trace in Chapter 2, on the one hand, became very famous. They were then uh, also serialized in newspapers. They, they did something which was a, a format we see until today. They would have one article. Uh, for each article, you would have one image. And so it was trying to make the law particularly accessible by trying to visualize how each article uh, would look implemented in China's new society. And this format, on the one hand, um, as I said, was particularly popular. It didn't get serialized. Um, it also gets turned into exhibitions where these uh, booklet images become big posters that uh, exhibition docents then lead groups through explaining what the laws are all about. Uh, but on the other hand, um, these two booklets about the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries and about the implementation of the marriage law um, then become famous examples of uh, a so-called allotment crisis in uh, the publishing field, um, where it turned out uh, by early nineteen uh, by by. Um, early 1953 and then into spring 1953, just as the marriage law campaign unfolds, then in fact, rather than trying to uh, entice people to purchase these volumes or entice them to read them, um, local cadres in uh, many counties had in fact uh, forcefully allotted and made people pay uh, for these volumes, even if uh, the the villages or particularly the households, uh, which uh, they, they made purchase uh, a, a copy actually only had illiterate people. And so that in turn becomes this mini moment of crisis in the publishing field, which then sort of circles around uh, the, the fear of how to produce, well, for the one, how to produce good law propaganda, but then also how to ensure that the way law propaganda is brought to, quote unquote, the people is not such that uh, people get very annoyed, both with uh, the medium as well as with the message, and then uh, prove perfectly unwilling to engage with any of it. Yeah, so you talk a lot more about uh, the marriage law in the following chapter, um, and this next part of your book talks about two case studies, the marriage law and uh, its dissemination and also the constitution draft uh, the next year after that. So uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about what was the marriage law. Um, you discussed uh, the basic spirit of that. What's, what's the issue there? The issue with the marriage law. Mm. So. So, so the marriage, for, sorry, go ahead. So the marriage law 
is one of famously this is i mean a lot an enormous amount has been written on the marriage law this is uh, quite a wonderful field to be working in at the same time also very daunting um, the marriage law together with land reform is and, and the agrarian reform law are often seen as the, the two basic laws of um, a, a you know any new communist regime um, following in the footsteps of uh, the Soviet Union and so the marriage law um, really was all about trying to outlaw uh, outline sorry what they called a so-called new democratic we're still in the phase of new democracy in the early 1950s and this is 1950 when it gets promulgated um, a new democratic marriage system later on this very same new democratic marriage system is relabeled the socialist marriage system and the idea outlawed in uh, out I've got it with outlawed today. <laughs> outlined in uh, the general principles um, is that the new marriage system uh, would mean um, state protection of uh, the freedom to marry and divorce, gender equality, monogamy, um, happiness, harmony, and love, um, so that you know happy and harmonious couples and families would be able to work towards uh, uh, you know that socialist utopia to be uh, happy and harmonious would. Um, enable production and production in turn it was for the whole what was for the good of the entire country and at the same time um, these general principles so in the first articles of the marriage law then also outlaw what they call the feudal later on sometimes also dubbed the old marriage system which is all about arbitrary and compulsory arrangements and the supremacy of man over woman i'm quoting here uh, disregard of children um, and basically things like bigamy, concubinage, child betrothal, uh, interference in the remarriage of widows, etc. And so the idea of the marriage law really was, and this is often how it's been uh, discussed, to fundamentally reshape uh, the nature of uh, both uh, relations between men and women, but also family relations overall. Mm. And so in if I understood your question correctly, then in the campaign, this becomes all about how to explain these principles in a way that people and in this marriage law had had led both famously this um i'm referring i'm I'm making use here of of, uh, a rich body of scholarship that has looked at the consequences social consequences of the marriage law um and we get both a an increase famously of um of people on the one hand trying to use this law, um, but then also people becoming very worried about the consequences of the law. It might be breaking up families, that it might lead women to freely divorce, that it might, and this happens quite a bit, um, as others have described, that it might lead uh, men to simply decide that they don't like their wife anymore, they want another wife, um, that it leads to, and this happens in, in 50, 51, 52, to, uh, also to attacks on, uh, on, on mothers-in-law, on, uh, but then it also leads to an enormous amount of violence against women who are trying to make use of this marriage law. The suicide rate increases exponentially. Um, And so in the context of uh, this moment, then explaining the marriage law in the way that by 1953, the party had decided it was meant to be understood, that becomes the focus of the campaign. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also use this chapter to discuss the importance of models being used in this first campaign. I wonder if you could talk about that a little. Well, models were everywhere. Um, The model becomes essential to trying and link political visions of what 
model families, model individuals, model couples, model village communities should look like to the otherwise very simple and broad um, stipulations of the marriage law. Now, it's worth remembering that when you read the marriage law today, many of the things that it stipulates would not strike us as particularly revolutionary anymore, but at the time they were. And so, but, but they were phrased in a way that was not automatically um, fitting the, the, these legal articles into the political vision of the CCP. And so models served in a way to tie what was called the basic spirit, which was um, the basic spirit sort of encapsulates uh, these first that I was just talking about, these first articles of the marriage law, uh, both the abolishing of the old marriage system, the feudal marriage system, and the institution of the new democratic new marriage system. So these general principles were then explained as being the basic spirit of the law, and models would be the way to translate the basic spirit of the marriage law into um, tropes of everyday life of families and couples and uh social groups under CCP rule. And so models, we've had a lot of fantastic scholarship about models. And so on the basis of that, I was really able to look at what do models mean when we have a campaign for law? Is there any difference in how sort of what what the the sort of function models then have? Um, And as I just said, these models become embodiments of the basic spirit, uh, but in a way that allows uh, propaganda to link what is really written in the law with political visions of how people should live. So we get a strong connection through the model between simple accessible but also quite vague legal articles and uh, very concrete ideas about who the new socialist man, woman and family is, how they look like, what they wear, how they behave. Um, And in linking this basic spirit and actual implementation of the law through cultural production, models then become sort of a typified version that that really embodies not merely the lawful and the unlawful, but also the right and wrong and the good and bad. And so I use, for example, um, a few example images in the book that show that when legal articles were explained um, in saying, you know, this used to be unlawful and now this is lawful, very often they would juxtapose images of pre-49 and post-49 China. And by association, the argument was therefore, if you were a couple wearing the following, you know, you have a top hat on, you look like a Republican couple, um, and you're, you're in this image of an unlawful marriage, then wearing this, looking like this by association, it is suggested this is too is unlawful and feudal. So what was feudal by association became unlawful. And so these models allowed... Um, cultural workers who produce these materials um, to really create a narrative of what this of what laws would really look like when they were implemented in uh, society. That still, I should add, that still is, is a far cry from what people, what many people then experience the implementation of the marriage law to be, but at least in terms of 
propaganda materials, it allows this this crucial link between law and politics that is that was not there by default. It had to be created, and models are one mode of transmission for creating this link between law and political visions. Mm. And then your next chapter uh, looks at the 1954 state constitution draft discussion, and you say this is really taking legal learning to a new level um, because it's being presented as a national discussion. Could you talk about how different it was or uh, why was there this shift in the first place? The shift from like having a ma- marriage law to yeah, having a mass campaign uh, like the marriage law to more of a national discussion. What's that shift or why is there that shift? The state discussion, uh, the state constitution discussion, um, it builds on the 1936 uh, discussion of the state constitution draft in the Soviet Union. And so in many ways, um, there was sort of a a blueprint for the PRC uh, to do this in the context of 1954 is a very important moment for this, um, in the context of solidifying um, new structures for uh, for, for the state. Um, now, the marriage law had been less of a had not been in, in that way a participatory activity. In that, people just learned the law; they hadn't participated in its drafting. Um, and this was meant to be very different for the state constitution. Um, the logic here was uh, that in making people, and this is, we're back to the mass line logics, in involving as many people as possible in discussing a draft, getting in some form, whether or not it matters is another thing, um, getting their feedback and incorporating, at least in theory, incorporating or at least acknowledging this feedback and then passing this new state constitution, everybody through their participation, through this mass line logic would therefore also be responsible for adhering to the state constitution. And so this, I think, is a step from where we had been in 1950 when uh, the first laws were passed, from just passing of laws and then their dissemination and and, and people being educated in these laws to this point in 1954 when people are made, there would be a negative word for this, made complicit or at least involved in the process of theoretically involved in the process of making these laws and therefore then also become responsible once the state constitution is passed for, and this is really key, abiding by the constitution. So the logic is through participation, once then this law is passed, you have an obligation to also abide by it because the state constitution is the laws, the law of the people, the major law of the people. And so in the chapter, I tried through many different examples, both from the point of actually organizing the state constitution, you know, what you could actually publish about openly what was going on in uh, the discussion of the state constitution and what material had to then be uh, published internally, mostly stuff that was going wrong, um, to the point of thinking about how did people actually respond to learning about the state constitution. And there were some very curious responses uh, that made sense, but they were nonetheless in in their own way curious um, to the point of creating and then also policing materials that drive home this message that the state constitution is the major, sometimes also called the mother law of 
the people and therefore they have a duty to abide by it. A logic, by the way, a, a rationale which we still see being used today in the context of the state constitution. So that was sort of the step from chapter two of, and chapter three to chapter four. Uh, and why don't we skip ahead now to uh, the later period that you cover in your book um, following the Cultural Revolution, uh, where you discuss uh, basically new attempts to institute law propaganda uh, during this pretty new era. So what is uh, basically the goal or the goals of these kind of late 1970s, early 1980s law propaganda? Uh, what are they trying to do and how does it link back to what we've seen before? So, chapter five takes us into the post-78 period, but it starts in 1970, and this was quite important in my opinion. And I, I stumbled, literally stumbled across some uh, archival materials in <laughs> Shanghai um, that while I was looking for various responses to different state constitutions from 1954 all the way into the 1980s, and there were in fact archival materials for uh, the 1982 uh, discussion of the state constitution draft, um, I actually happened upon the 1970s, a few, not many, 1970s documents that really showed how people in 1970 discussed very briefly um, a draft for a new state constitution. Now, we know this is been a famous episode in uh, the history of the Cultural Revolution, uh, this moment of uh, elite uh, party leadership uh, contestations that erupt over, over this constitution and over the question of uh, the state, uh, sort of, 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 of state and party leadership. Um, but what I had not known and what I could find very little uh, discussion of was that there had been a public, at least in uh, Shanghai, um, but also it turns out now in other cities, there had been a public discussion of this draft. Um, and this draft then, um, it is not promulgated in 1970. It becomes the basis for the famous 1975 uh, constitution. Um, and then we go into uh, a phase of new constitutions. So we go from 1975 to 1978 and 1982. But really what I then call a decade of Chinese constitutions started at the height of the Cultural Revolution. And this little fact mattered uh, because it meant that people in 1970 had actually started, restarted to study uh, some people had restarted studying laws and had uh, thought about sort of what was going on at that moment in the context of a new state constitution. And they didn't actually forget that by the time we get to 1978, 79, and the promulgation of a new constitution. However, uh, official rhetoric uh, told quite a different story. I mean, that's where we have often presumed uh, that 1976, the death of Mao, and then 1978, uh, the beginning, December 1978, the beginning of reform and opening had been the beginning, also the beginning of a new era of legal reform, um, and therefore a new era for people to uh, have laws, to use laws, and to learn about and then think about laws and their role in their everyday lives. Um, and so clearly 1970, for one, upset that story, um, but it also meant that a very popular trope of the Cultural Revolution, at least um, 
had to be examined quite critically. And that was the trope of lawless China and the lawless cultural revolution. Now, I should say right up front that my book does not, and I personally would not ever uh, intend to question many of the excellent uh, excellent scholarship we have that show that in practice, uh, just how lawless in practice the, uh, the Cultural Revolution was. Um, but the point was that lawlessness as a term Actually, it, it was part of a famous 19, uh, late 1960s uh, People's Editorial, um, excuse me, People's Daily article. It was not an editorial. This is actually a point I tried to make. It was not an editorial. It becomes known as an editorial, although it is not one. Um, but in that moment, we get this term lawlessness. And this term lawlessness has becomes very prominent in the late 70s and early 80s to describe, in hindsight, what had happened in the Cultural Revolution. And so the Cultural Revolution quickly becomes this 10 year, ten years of lawlessness. And so the logic, given that people had gone through this phase of lawlessness and there was now a new era under CCP rule post-78 that had new laws, people, everyone, would have to be educated in new laws in order for lawlessness not to, um, not to become all-pervasive again. And so chapter uh, five really tries to somehow trace how the CCP tried to, and in some ways managed, and in some other ways did not manage to um, create a narrative of a new socialist society and a new kind of CCP rule post-78. And here it's, you know, it's, it's worth remembering that this was the same party that had taken China into the Cultural Revolution. So then with laws become one instrument to try and, graft a new narrative for what post-cultural revolution China was going to be all about. And in this context, then, popularizing laws has a powerful new rationale, and that namely is to help people understand how not to be lawless on the assumption that everybody would be, um, and how to, in turn, how to use propaganda in an efficient, in an efficient way that ensures that people know how properly to understand these new laws and how to live by them. And so that really became the focus of chapter five. And then in chapter six, we see a further development, which you referenced before, the fact that there is the first five-year plan uh, that is supposed to deal with the popularization of common legal knowledge, um, making it kind of a regular technique of the CCP. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the broad strokes of this plan. Um, how did it try to use new media, things of that nature? So by 1985, um, the, a decision was reached in late 1985 that there would be a five-year plan for the popularization of legal knowledge, much that like there had been institutionalized plans for the popularization of scientific knowledge. And by that point, after 78, laws had become, and, and you see this term being used today, still scientific. So the idea was that if laws are scientific, they can be understood and taught in a scientific manner. Um, and this five-year plan was meant to do that. It first focuses on cadres and then on youth. And this idea, and this has been discussed in many um, works on the 1980s, 70s, and 80s in China, uh, youth become sort of the, the, the a, a broad group that is understood to be particularly in danger of being corrupted because they 
grew up during the Cultural Revolution, and therefore the assumption is they would know nothing about laws and they would need to be educated in laws in order to become good and law-abiding citizens. Um, now, the curious thing of uh, this, this 1985 five-year plan that then begins in 1986 is really that um, it brings together a, a wide group of people within sort of central party leadership who did agree that knowing laws was a good thing, either because, sort of schematically put, either because it would be a way to hold uh, the state accountable um, or because it would be a way to control how citizens understood laws and to ensure that they understood them correctly. And I just wanted to add here this idea of what the correct and incorrect understanding of laws is, is a constant matter for debate from the 50s all the way until the 1980s. And it is not at all clear, even to census at all times, what exactly the correct interpretation of these laws is. Um, and so 1985, that was a time, you know, you have TV by that point, so you get where you had previously had a lot of uh, print material for laws, you would have uh, theaters, theater plays and operas um, in the 1950s, you would have cartoons, uh, human interest stories, you would have newspaper reading groups, a lot of radio broadcasting. Um, in the 1980s, TV um, uh, had become a very important component of law propaganda and remains until today. At the same time, the 1980s media landscape was, you know, a far cry from uh, the 1950s, although it did share um, some commonalities, of course, in terms of the uh, return um, of uh, a more diverse uh, publishing landscape um, that we had also had in the early 1950s. And so um, these new medias, uh, these new media, sorry, meant that um, getting, creating law propaganda that would actually interest people was could be quite difficult, um, especially if getting if making law propaganda uh, also meant making law propaganda that could pass uh, the critical eye of censors. Um, the problem was here: you didn't want to make it too uh, too um, gory. You didn't want to make it uh, too violence prone. That was something that uh, constantly appears in internal documents. Law propaganda should not only emphasize crime; um, it should also talk about civic civic duty, and it should talk about how to lead a good socialist life. Um, the question was then, for instance, also about um, how to avoid creating law propaganda they may accidentally show uh, loopholes in the law that then people could exploit if they wanted to um and so the, the this mid-1980s moment for me very much becomes um dominated by a search for uh, reliable uh attractive propaganda that can get people to actually pay attention to law and let's 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 be honest uh learning about laws is not the most interesting of things necessarily and and if you have a choice between uh you know one form of uh one one form of reading material uh, and, and 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 legal education material chances are all of us wouldn't be going for the legal education material at first and this is clearly a problem straight from the 50s all the way into the 80s so how to make it but one's attractive and on the other hand also um, 
safe for dissemination, at least from the perspective of uh, party state officials, was this big question. And one format particularly stood out uh, to me, and that was the appearance of legal knowledge contests, which become really popular in the second half of the 1980s in the course of this first five-year plan, um, in which you would have you know, either magazine-based, or you would have this in the context of work unit uh, or municipal level or district level uh, competitions where people would uh, study laws in order to be able then in a competition to answer uh, questions correctly and then um, in turn obtain uh, a badge or a certificate if they did particularly well, one associated with a prize um, to show that they had really understood the laws, they could explain the laws to others, they could be good models, we're back to models of popularizing laws, and they could be good citizens. So this idea of the good law-abiding citizen becomes very important in the course of the 1980s, and then it sort of ties in with patriotic education, it ties in with education in um, sort of in, in, in uh morals in uh, also for youth in being polite um, and, and so law becomes part of all of this broader attempt to create the good socialist citizen hmm. and we're kind of running out of time here but I wondered if you could also talk briefly about um, what has the legacy been of these various law dissemination efforts uh, throughout the history of the PRC a complicated one, probably. Um, <laughs> probably. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're, these these five year plans have been cons- have, have uh, just went on, and we we are now in. Am I calculating correctly? I think in the seventh five year plan still, um, and every every five year plan slightly shifts focus. Um, at times, the dissemination of laws sort of it's practiced, but it is not as important as other forms of education. And then occasionally it sort of reappears very strongly um, in the broader network of uh, CCP propaganda activities. Um, I mean, given given recent developments uh, in... Uh, in Xinjiang, I think there's there's a there's a powerful uh, story to be told now uh, for law propaganda and this idea of abiding by laws in the context of what is happening in uh, Western China um, in very in very tragic ways. Um, and so I think the legacy there's no clear legacy that sort of that I could now outline in a nice and neat way, but it becomes law propaganda and the popularization of law becomes I think. I think of it as a tool in the tool box of uh, of uh, the Chinese party state that reappears at moments when it is when it is useful. Um, at the same time, and I think I haven't managed to highlight this much in, in what I've said previously, the, the constant risk since the 50s or also before, but all the way until today is, of course, that when you educate people broadly um, in laws, if only as a way to try and ensure that they uh, understand laws correctly, um, that, that dissemination of knowledge means that people acquire a vocabulary with which they can uh, understand their everyday life also in legal terms. Now, that was, of course, on the one hand, the goal, but that could in turn mean that people would and did and continue to compare what they have learned uh, with what they see, experience um, in themselves and in their immediate environment. And so I think um, one of the most important reasons for me for writing this book was to show that 
state propaganda from the beginning of uh, national rule under the CCP was heavily involved in, in, in helping people acquire legal knowledge. And this may, in some ways, um, at least help us to explain how people came to know um, the laws that then we have seen other, uh, other scholars Famously, Kevin O'Brien and others who look at um, who look at contemporary China um, show that people then are using this locally to claim their rights, or he calls it rights consciousness. Elizabeth Perry has called it rules consciousness, or in some way to say that what they're experiencing does not match what they know their uh, the, the law to be and their rights to be. And so, in a way, I think that's for me the 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 legacy. As I said, a complicated legacy, but the legacy of the 1950s all until all the way until today that people don't just know about laws in China. They they have, amongst others, acquired this legal knowledge by way of being educated uh, in them under state auspices. So in some way, the state and party have always been involved in um, passing this knowledge on, which then gets used in ways that are uh, not necessarily easy to control. Mm, fantastic. Uh, well, Jen, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I do have one final question for you that is pretty traditional on this podcast. Uh, what are you working on now? I've got a couple of things, uh, a couple of essays on uh, aspects of legal history. I'm looking at uh the connection between Chinese jurists in the 1980s and uh, jurists in Eastern European socialist countries. Um, I also want to explore this idea of the materiality of law a little more because that some of that stuck with me. Um, but for a bigger project, I have decided to leave law completely um, and to look instead at, uh, at a new book, hopefully, um, which I've tentatively called Material Maoism, which explores everyday industrial design in uh, in the People's Republic of China, again, from the 50s all the way until the 1990s, um, but looking at the kind of material, the, the kind of materiality in everyday material life of people from very, you know, very ordinary furniture, um, everyday ordinary objects, um, and to examine how that uh, how that creates there's a sort of cr- creates a socialist society or a society that people associate materially with the political ideology um, of socialism. Mm, sounds it should be fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'm learning a lot of chemistry <laughs> in order to understand how plastics are produced. <laughs> Oh, goodness. That's great. Okay. So, Jen, thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and goodbye. Thanks so much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Laurie Dickmeyer. Thank you for listening.